Welcome to Aspen Insight. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. In Indian country, tribes are struggling with nutrition. Obesity and diabetes rates are sky high, but young Native people are working on the problem, and an Aspen Institute program is helping. But first, we look into one of the biggest issues in our democracy, partisanship. Gerrymandering, campaign finance, partisan media, these factors are contributing to an intensely divided country and have created a Congress split along party lines. But it wasn't always this bad. Our colleagues Dan Glickman and Mickey Edwards know this better than anyone. They served side by side in Congress during the 1980s and 90s. Dan, a Democrat who represented Kansas, and Mickey, a Republican who represented Oklahoma. We brought them into the Aspen Institute studio where they talked about how they were able to work across the aisle and why that's not being done nearly as often today. I took a back seat for this interview and turned over the mic to a special guest who swung by the Institute, Anna Palmer. She's a senior Washington correspondent for Politico and co-author of the Politico Playbook, a daily newsletter about the biggest news stories in Washington. This conversation took place back in January, during the first government shutdown this year. So Anna kicks it off by asking about this. Mickey answers first. You guys have been in Washington a long time, in government service when shutdowns have happened, as observers. What does it feel like in Congress when there's a shutdown? What are you hearing? Are people tense? Is there nervousness? Yeah, I I, I think what's important though is that things are going to be disrupted a little bit, but it's not going to be fatal. The but what is potentially fatal uh, is people are looking and saying our government doesn't work. Why can't these guys get it? So for the last couple of days, you've just seen uh, Chuck Schumer and and other Democrats saying this is all the fault of the Republicans. And you you, you turn the other side and the Republicans saying it's all the fault of the Democrats. They're shutting it down. We don't really care who's doing it. Why, Why don't you sit down, work it out together? And, and that's doable. And neither party wants to do that. They want to blame the other one because they have 2018 elections coming up. And, and so people who are losing confidence in the system are correct. And I would They're just right. add one other thing, too, and that is, is that in a company or in a high-performance venture operations, it usually is the CEO or the person at the top that kind of makes sure that this thing doesn't happen. Now, in our system, there is nobody really at the top because we have separation of powers, but the president is basically the chief executive officer of the country. And if he or she is not exercising that role in a responsible leadership way, it just makes it all the more impossible because Congress on its own is so fractionated anyway. Yeah, one of the things I think is interesting, I was in, in the Senate and in the Capitol in the, when the last shutdown happened in 2013. This time is a lot about immigration, DACA. Then it was about Obamacare with uh, Senator Ted Cruz. But I wanted to take a step back with you guys. What do you think is really the biggest change that's happened since you all were serving uh, in Congress that, that maybe is getting us to this point? Is, is it that people spend a lot less time in Washington or are there other things that you've noticed that has just changed the culture? Well, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of fundamental changes that have happened in government in the last, it's not just 10 or 12 years, it's the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, 
We have uh, members of Congress who are elected by much more narrow constituencies because of gerrymandering, so they're appealing to their base as opposed to appealing to the center. Most Americans are between the 40-yard line and the 40-yard line, but the bases are between the end zone and the 20-yard line, and so it becomes very difficult. And you add the question of money in politics and the amount of uh, dollars that are spent on campaigns, and uh, then you add to the fact that we're a much more tribal society and, and the public uh, is not necessarily rewarding members of Congress to pursue a middle-of-the-road course. I mean, you find very few intense moderates out there. The intensity is on the edges. Those all make it very difficult for a member of Congress to uh, perform in a kind of leadership capacity to get things done. You know, Daniel Webster has this quote above the chair of the Speaker of the House. It says, we come here to do things worthy to be remembered. And I just worry that that's not necessarily the great incentive to, in today's yeah, politics. Yeah, I, I, I think it's not. What, what's happening now is not worthy to be remembered, but it is remembered. I mean, you know, the, the citizens do, do know that uh, they watch this and know it's not working very well. There's a couple of changes that have happened. One is... Uh, that we have the Hastert rule. It's really basically followed by Republicans and Democrats both, uh, which is, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the party in the majority and it's going to be what we want uh, and we're going to pretty well shut the other party out. Both parties have done this. Uh, that's a major part of it. And some of it is systemic. So that when you, you know, Dan's talking about the way that uh, the extremes dominate in the elections, part of it's gerrymandering. We also have laws in almost every state, 46 states, that say whoever wins the primary can be the only person from that party who's allowed to be on the ballot in November, which means you've, you've got the more extremes come through the process and end up uh, getting elected. So um, there are a lot of reasons systemically uh, what you allow to come to the floor, what amendments you allow to be considered that, that are being shut out. Uh, the, the separation of powers is disappearing because if the president is of your party, you know, you go along with whatever he wants. So you see Mitch McConnell saying, well, we want to first find out what the president wants. Who cares? You're the Congress. Pass something. If he doesn't like it and he vetoes it, override it. So there is a loss in Congress of an understanding of its job, its responsibilities. Uh, and that's a big part of the problem. And, and you know, I, and Mickey and I represented kind of similar cities, Oklahoma City and Wichita, kind of in the heartland. And... Um, I had to play it in the middle. That is, uh, I was a Democrat in an area that was largely Republican, and not the same kind of Republican base as you have today. Sure. So it was an asset to me to be a middle-of-the-roader, to be able to maybe support the president if he were a Democrat 50 or 60 percent of the time rather than 100 percent of the time. Today, that's not an asset anymore. Right. I think, I mean, you obviously have the fear right on both the right and the left is the primary from the more extreme faction instead of trying to go to the middle. So there's yeah. very little reason to compromise. But Dan also brought up before uh, about uh, the citizens themselves. So that that's a part of it. So Dan was a Democrat representing a Republican area. I was a Republican representing a Democrat area. My my district was 74 percent Democrat when they when I was elected as a Republican. And Today, people have sorted themselves out. So it's not just in Congress. You, you have an electorate that tends to, they, they watch the shows they want to watch, and, and they don't ever listen to a different point of view. People have sorted into uh, 
communities that, that think the way they do. And, and so uh, that that's a big part of the problem because if you're in elective office, you worry about you know how you're going to please your constituents. And the constituents are getting harder and harder to please unless you take a very hard line. Well, and you alluded to this earlier, this kind of point of you know lurching from election to election, 2018 already on the minds of everybody uh, in Congress. When, when I'm up in the Capitol, they're all they're in campaign mode. Is there, when, whether you're talking about victories or not, is there anything you think that could be bipartisan before this 2018 election, opioids? Could there be anything that they can come together on? Or is it just, you think it's kind of sure. over until the next you know, they're pretty close together on chip. They're, they they are pretty close together on opioids. They're, they're pretty close together on, on quite a number of things. So the, the problem is that if you allowed, if they allowed themselves and their leadership allowed them to sit down and just work it out, but the, the leadership seems to believe it is their job to keep the president happy, you know, he's there on their team, uh, or to only move forward those things that your party will support. And so a lot of things that could be getting done aren't going to get done because of the politics. And the politics, when Dan and I were there, was there are 435 of us. There, These are the problems that are out there. Let's sit down, work it out. And, you know, we had, when Dan and I were there, we had major issues. There were big fights. I mean, it wasn't that it was all everybody thought the same. But in the end, we said, we're both members of Congress. You know, let's sit down. Let's figure out how we can compromise and get something done. That sort of disappeared. Uh, Well, speaking of the midterms, there's a lot of talk about waves and a wave election. Where do you guys, you know, kind of see things right now? Do you think, Dan, Democrats are going to take back the House? I, you know, I don't know. Mickey and I have had, we did a little emailing today about this particular point. You never know for sure, because look, I predicted Hillary Clinton would win big, and I was just so dramatically wrong on that. Uh, um, I, I suspect that there are going to be changes, and I think that either house could go Democratic this time, because historic trends point in that direction. I, I don't think that. I For one thing, the, the Democrats have a serious problem in that in the Senate, you know, most of the seats that are up for grabs are Democratic seats. Very tough map and, and for them. So, so that's not a good map. Um, district by district. So the national polls are all showing that there's a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats and less so among Republicans. But that's a national poll. And there are no national elections, right? They're going to be in each state. And uh, it's who you get to how you get your people to the polls or not. Uh, If you have a huge margin in New York or in California, that'll help in New York and California. Uh, But there's a big country in between, you know, that may not may be more balanced in terms of where the enthusiasm is so it's hard to predict uh, right now just given the, the margins I would say probably Republicans are going to hold both houses I and even though I'm a Republican I don't know that's necessarily a good thing because I think uh, there has to be some ways of checking this president uh, his policies aren't all bad But as Dan says, his character is very bad, uh, and what he's doing to undermine democratic values is very bad. And so I think uh, Democrats want to win for the purposes of winning. I think a lot of Republicans, myself included, would like to see Republicans kind of get a wake-up call and say, you got to get off this track you're on. 
No, absolutely. Before we close out, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your roles at the Aspen Institute. Um, and how do you think your work you're doing here kind of affects politics in Washington, across the country? Tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys are focused on. Uh, so I uh, am involved in the congressional program. So my job is to kind of to be the continuing education person to get members of Congress educated. So we do overseas conferences. We do breakfasts on a variety of topics, mostly in the global, international, national security space, because that tends to be less partisan. And then when we bring people together, a lot of these people don't know each other. So the old song, to know him is to love him, is or to know her is to love her, whichever way you want to go. And uh, that uh, it, it tends to be helpful. Uh, you know, I wish I could tell you that I have re- changed revolutionary in a way that the world is just, people do all love each other. But I think our program has been helpful in getting members of Congress to respect each other and at least in the venues that I work on uh, not be so tribal and vitriolic with each other. Mickey, how about you? Well, our program is uh, one that is, it's a fellowship program, and we have uh, people who are members of city councils, mayors, uh, lieutenant governors, state treasurers, all, the, all these kinds of people, uh, and we bring them together to try to create partisan bipartisanship but also more civility people getting to work together uh and we look at higher values so we talk a lot about plato and aristotle and Locke and hobbes and confucius and things like that you know as opposed to current issues uh, and so we we have now had 13 classes of fellows uh none of them, they were in the offices that i that i mentioned Three of them have served in the president's cabinet, gone on to serve in the president's cabinet. Fifteen have been elected to Congress. Six have been elected governors. Uh, we, our, our group includes the mayors now of Los Angeles, Atlanta, Phoenix, Minneapolis, Denver, Cincinnati, and all around the country. So um, ours is to take people who are coming up in the system uh, and to kind of shape the way they look at things. So we, we don't try to take liberals and make them conservatives or make conservatives into liberals. We, we let them stay, you know, who they are. Uh, but to get the idea that people on the other side are not bad guys, they're, they're, they're not evil, you can sit down and work with them. And so a lot of the uh, major players you see, young players coming up in the political system today, are graduates of our program. And uh, so that, that's what we're trying I to do. I think one of the great things about uh, Mickey's program is they create the incentives for leadership. Yeah. And leadership comes at all levels, not just from Washington. And actually, there are a lot better things happening at state and local levels in many cases than there are at the national level. And I think his program has really facilitated that. Yeah, that's right. And we also, we, we try to emphasize, there is really no such thing as a leader. I mean, that, that's a, a leader, you know, some magical person. that walk, it's, it's the exercise of leadership. And anybody can exercise leadership from wherever they are, whatever office they're in or even outside of office. And that's what we try to do is get people to step up and and show some leadership on things that need to be done. And as Dan said, we emphasize this, you know, Dan's right. You know, sometimes leadership means saying to your supporters, I'm sorry, but this is what we need to do. Well, on that note, thanks guys so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. Okay, glad to do it. (laughs) 
That was Politico's Anna Palmer speaking with Dan Glickman and Mickey Edwards, both vice presidents at the Aspen Institute. Dan is executive director of the Institute's congressional program, and Mickey leads the Rodell Fellowships in Public Leadership. You can learn more about their work to improve the world of public service on our website, aspeninstitute.org insight. Hey, Zach, when did we release our first episode of Aspen Insight? Uh, September. Oh, that's right. Man, it's been a wild ride. Well, I want to remind folks that if they've just subscribed to the show, there are many compelling voices from previous episodes. That's so true. Like when we spoke with Paulina Guerrero, a senior at the University of Texas at El Paso. I know a lot of uh, friends who are scared of going to college because they don't want to get in debt. I've also heard people are scared of going to college or that they don't feel it's necessary. That's right. The Institute's College Excellence Program was working with students like Paulina to help them get to college and graduate. We also talked to Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson about his new book, Leonardo da Vinci. Over the years, I've noticed that the most creative people are the ones who are interested in the most subjects. They like music as well as science. They like art as well as engineering. And the ultimate of that is Leonardo da Vinci. Find these stories and many others by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player or search hashtag Aspen Insight on Twitter. Now let's get back to the voices we're featuring in today's show. Here's our next piece. The health and nutrition problems plaguing tribal areas in the United States are daunting. Obesity and difficult-to-access healthy foods are problems Native people struggle with more than most other demographic groups. Half of all Native kids born today will develop diabetes. Communities home to indigenous people are often food deserts, and tribal governments lag behind in using policy to protect traditional food. Finally, climate change is threatening one tribe's traditional food and way of life. Young Native people say they've had enough. From Alaska to Montana and Arkansas, they're working to end the nutrition crisis that has its roots in federal policy and the removal of tribes from their homeland. 24-year-old Mariah Gladstone is a busy young professional. I caught up with her at a hotel in snowy Whitefish, Montana. Nice to meet you. Hi there. Nice to meet you. A day before a trip to Washington, D.C. She's meeting with the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. Yeah, I'm definitely passionate about a lot of different things uh, affecting Native communities. She's an enrolled member of the Blackfeet and Cherokee tribes and grew up in the mountains close to Glacier National Park. So my people are traditionally from across the Continental Divide. It's about an hour and a half from here. Um, But a lot of the foods that my people ate were found in the mountains. Gladstone is passionate about food. In the summer, she hikes to find huckleberries, chokecherries, juneberries, and camas root, all foods her ancestors ate. These berry-picking adventures have an important purpose. She's committed to improving the diet of her people. Today we'll be making a pre-contact meal using indigenous foods found on the North American continent. She stars in a series of short online cooking shows she created called Kitchen. It is not a Martha Stewart thing. I don't even have to put up makeup to do them, which is great. Um, But it's, it's really cool because people are able to see something happen in less than two minutes. They realize that it's actually a very simple process 
to make a lot of this stuff. So a lot of what I'm doing in my cooking using the modern kitchen, obviously, is to take traditional foods that would have been on North America and maybe mixing them up as they would have probably never been found between different tribes. These ancestral foods are healthy, sure, but Gladstone says they're also easier to digest. The American diet universally has very high levels of processed foods at this point. Um, everyone's eating it, but for native people who have only been dealing with this for a couple hundred years, the detrimental effects are exponentially elevated. Indigenous bodies have had just a few centuries to learn how to digest introduced foods like flour, sugar, and dairy. Prior to contact with European settlers, native people relied on the land. The predominant food for Gladstone's tribe, buffalo. Like 90% bison. So uh, very, very protein rich um, and also high in omega-3s, which is something you don't think about with red meats very often. These nutritional benefits were lost when bison were nearly wiped out. U.S. General Philip Sheridan said in 1875, once the animals were exterminated, the Indians would be controlled and civilization could advance. The loss of buffalo was just the beginning. Federal policies like the Indian Removal Act forced natives onto land too poor to farm, dammed waterways, and introduced government rations. When you make such drastic changes, to the diet of entire communities, then that creates this culture of unhealthiness. Amber Richardson is with the Aspen Institute's Center for Native American Youth. She helped write a report that shows the lingering effects of the government's war tactics are still apparent. The remnants are clear. I mean, we have terrible obesity and diabetes rates, even in our children. And it was never supposed to be that way, especially if you're living off of the land and eating things that are just that are supposed to be good for your body. It's just we were never meant to, to be this way. Well, um, hello, my name is Sam Schimmel. I'm from St. Lawrence Island, Alaska, and Kenai, Alaska. In this and, YouTube um, video, 17-year-old uh, Sam Schimmel is on stage change, in Washington, D.C. Along with Mariah Gladstone, he was to, recognized uh, last year as one of the Center for Native American Youth's Champions for Change, an initiative that supports the next generation of Native leaders. More on that later. Schimmel lives in a food desert, rural Gamble, Alaska. The only access is by airplane. It's, uh, it's a very remote village. I think it's got 800 or 900 people living in it. At the grocery store, he says a gallon of milk runs 15 bucks, and it can cost $200 to prepare a meal for three. So you really, you really see that it's not affordable to eat from the grocery store in uh, Gamble, so you see a lot more subsistence foods. A lot of the diet is uh, walrus and whale and seal. These are the traditional foods of his ancestors, the St. Lawrence Island Siberian Yupik. They're healthy foods, and the hunting and fishing connects Sam and his neighbors to tradition. But there's a problem, climate change. What we see where we are in Alaska, we rely very, especially in Gamble, we rely very heavily on sea ice. For our hunting, we hunt walrus on the sea ice, and that's what makes up most of our traditional diet. And uh, you see with global warming, the uh, ice isn't coming in when it should, and it's leaving before it should. Before, people hunted five or six miles offshore. With the change in sea ice, they now must travel 100 dangerous miles north in small aluminum fishing boats to find walrus. And it's simply not safe to go 120 miles offshore in a little tiny 16-foot boat. We need 
gasoline and we need bigger boats to be able to continue our culture. He's working with U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski to replace government subsidies of canned salmon, spam, and Lunchables, foods used to supplement the diets of the people in Gamble, with gasoline and boats. When it comes to using policy to turn things around, Janie Hipp with the Chickasaw Nation is at the forefront. She leads the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas. Our initiative was launched in January of 2013, so we're at year five. The initiative is helping tribal governments have a seat at the policy-making table around food, agriculture, health, and wellness. Right now, international, federal, state, and even local laws drive guidance on things like food safety, animal health, and water use. HIP's team of food and agriculture lawyers and economists are helping tribes set their own policy agenda. But it is also very important that our tribal governments do whatever they can to enhance the policy environment that will allow us to take whatever steps we can in our inherent authority to govern around foods, because every other government on the planet does that. Tribes can use policy to protect their traditional foods. HIP, who was a senior advisor for tribal relations to Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, is also helping young Native people interested in food. She hosts an Indigenous Food and Agriculture Summer Leadership Summit for junior high, high school, and early college-aged youth. Last year, 150 students from 76 tribes were at the summit, held on the University of Arkansas campus. All kind of piled in here together with each other and with us, and really on this intense journey. It's with Native youth where she's most confident change can happen in food, health, and wellness. They're on fire for this whole area. And the sooner we can, you know, empower them and really let them lead us, I will tell you, in this space, uh, the better off we'll be and we will turn the corner. That's exactly what the Center for Native American Youth is attempting with its Champions for Change initiative. The program chooses five champions each year who are doing significant work in Indian country. Senior Communications Associate for the Center, Amber Richardson. We have champions who are working on things like suicide prevention, language revitalization, um, intergenerational relationships, peer mentoring, and the work on food and tradition that champions Mariah Gladstone and Sam Schimmel are doing. The program was started to take the spotlight off bad news in Indian country. Native youth often say themselves that when there's a news story about Native youth, it's often bad news. So we wanted to make a program that only focused on the great things that Native youth are doing. The program helps advance their work by connecting them with people like tribal leaders and members of Congress. They also take part in leadership and advocacy training. So there are two main benefits of utilizing pre-contact food in cooking. The For Mariah Gladstone, that's the goal of her online cooking show, to connect culture with healthy ancestral food. Right now, she says, a lot of her neighbors don't know it's an option. She remembers babysitting for a family on the reservation, and it was supper time. You know, talking about, oh, what do you guys want for dinner? And, hey, how about we have a salad with dinner? And I've never had a salad. But just, you know, re-educating about a lot of that information. People are interested in preparing traditional foods, she says, they just need to be taught how. For a lot of people that grew up with popping frozen meals from the freezer into the microwave because that's what would keep, that's what the family would buy, and learning how to prepare wild game, learning how to 
cook things that come out of your own personal garden or a community garden. That's kind of the missing link. Mariah loves it when someone writes who says they watched her show and put their own spin on the recipe. Besides in DigiKitchen, she's teaching kids in classrooms and traveling the country to speak about how to eat healthier. She hopes the next generation will be inspired to fight for a healthier future. Hey, Marcy, didn't the Center for Native American Youth just announce its 2018 Champions for Change? They did, in January. The five young people hail from Oklahoma, Arizona, Chicago, and Oregon. Their work includes reintegrating formerly incarcerated Native people, advocating for Native youth in foster care, revitalizing Native languages, and eliminating race-based mascots, among other things. Wow, that work sounds amazing. And this is the sixth cohort of champions for the Center for Native American Youth. You can read about them at cnay.org. That's it for today's episode. Do us a huge favor and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And send us your thoughts on Twitter using hashtag AspenInsight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute, and the Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Special thanks to our colleagues in the Institute's Congressional Program, the Rodell Fellowships in Public Leadership, and the Center for Native American Youth. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenen. Thanks for listening.